Well, hey there, freaks. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is sponsored by the Cash App, the app that's been helping us stack sats through this bear market. Uh, you guys know all about Cash App already. They've been the number one finance app in the App Store for the last two years. They're the first person-to-person payments app to add Bitcoin buying functionalities to their app. You can easily stack sats via the Cash App today. On top of uh, being able to stack sats, you freaks already know about the Boost program as well. This allows you to go to different merchants, whether it be Whole Foods, your local coffee shop, um, Panera, Taco Bell, Chick-fil-A, you name it. There's a bunch of merchants signed up for them. You can go, you use your Cash App Boost card, and you get a little savings at these merchants. Um, So go find the Cash App in the App Store, the Google Play Store today. Download it, start stacking sats, get a cool cash tag, get your boost card, start saving money today. Develop that low time preference mindset. Hope you freaks enjoy this uh, episode with Jeff Andrew. I know I certainly did. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here for podcast number two. On this Friday, podcast number four of the last 24 hours. It's been a lot of talking. I'm very excited to wrap up the week of recording with the gentleman that's sitting across from me. Uh, We have a lot to talk about. Uh, I'd like to introduce you freaks to Jeff Vandrew. Welcome to the pod. Happy to be here, man. Uh, Thanks for coming. Thanks for uh, taking some time out of your Friday afternoon to come into the city. I know Jersey boys don't like coming into New York City too often. It's uh, it's a hike for us. (laughs) We have a reflexive like revulsion to it. You know, the thing about like you get when you talk to like the few Bitcoiners that are are in Jersey, they're usually like in like Hoboken or something. That's not really being from New Jersey. Like, you know, you're on you got the path train. I live in like New Jersey. You know what I mean? Everything that you have in your head when you think about New Jersey, that's where I'm at. Yeah. I mean, I I'd like to think I have a part of Jersey. Me, too. I, I spend summers in South Jersey in Cape May County. And that's uh, where I grew up. Oh, yeah. Where Until at? I was 18, I lived uh, right outside. I went to grade school in Seattle City. <laughs> that's, hell yeah, dude. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. You were a Seattle guy? Yeah. So my, my family's uh, mostly from central Jersey, but my parents, before, right before I was born, moved down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually grew up down there, and then I moved back up to central Jersey. I still live at the shore because uh, I can't get away from the beach. But yeah. Yeah, I moved back up to Central Jersey like uh, when I was 18 for school first, for college, and then I just stayed. I've doxed myself. I've been spending summers in Sea Isle my whole life. Yeah, man. I remember when Sea Isle was a very different place. Very little, different Little place. single family cottages. Now right? it's all... It's a lot, a lot has changed. Since it's then. all duplexes slammed in there now. Yeah, it's crazy. What a small world. I know. Hell yeah. yeah. This is all, all right. This conversation has got 10 times better. Um, for you freaks that don't know, Jeff is uh, the youngest looking 38 year old I've ever met in my life. He's also a lawyer and a CPA who is doing some really cool work within Bitcoin. Before we get to what you're working on, yeah. how the hell did you come to Bitcoin? So great question. Um, my interest first started in sound money, right? Because as you said, being 38 years old, originally Bitcoin wasn't around for most of my life. So my interest in sound money really started with an interest in what's called distributism, uh, which for those listeners who aren't familiar, it's a political and economic philosophy based around the idea that all power should be exercised at the lowest level possible and power should be decentralized and spread across the largest number of people or entities possible. 
So the idea behind it is when you have a power or, or a regulation that can be exercised effectively at the family level, it should be exercised at the family level. Only if it can't be exercised effectively there do you move up to a local government, and then only then, if not effectively there, do you move up to a larger government, so like in the state's uh, national government or a state-level government. So I always had a strong interest in that. Um, and we could talk a little bit more about that, I guess, as time goes on. But one of the things that drove me to sound money coming from that angle was the Cantillon effect, which I know you've had people on this podcast talking about many times. One of the big centralizing forces when it comes to economic and political power is this Cantillon effect. It makes it hard for new actors to come in and compete. So that's what really got me interested in sound money. And then from sound money, obviously my original interest was gold, right? Like a lot of us older guys, we started there. But I always did kind of know that gold had these downsides. Like, you, first of all, you had to store it, right? And I was never a guy, I moved around a lot. Like all, it was, gold was never all that convenient for me, despite the fact that I saw the, the benefits of it. Mm -hmm. And obviously gold-backed currencies always have the problem that the backing always, the peg always eventually breaks, right? The, the, the bank or the government is always eventually going to come off the peg. So at the time, I never really thought there would be necessarily anything better. And then in like 2009, like mo like a lot of people, I heard about Bitcoin, but I just kind of wrote it off as a scammy thing um, that I didn't really take all that seriously. But as time went on, I really understood why it was an improvement over gold. And mm -hmm. in 14, 2014 is when I actually like bought in and really got involved. What were you doing around this time? Uh, so I'm an attorney and a CPA, as you mentioned. Um, so my background's very strange. Uh, so I'm an attorney, I'm a CPA, I'm a competitive bodybuilder, and then I also am a programmer, right? I, you know, I do con uh, contribute to open source projects. So what a, what a renaissance man. Yeah. I, I am a jack of all trades, master of none, <laughs> uh, as, as Bitcoin goes. So, uh, in 2014, I was already licensed as an attorney and a CPA, and I was already running Vandrew LLC, which is basically, it's the, still the, my day job now. Um, it's a tax consulting firm. So I'm an attorney and a CPA, but I'm not like a guy that wears a suit or goes to court or anything like that. I basically help, you know, my business basically helps people structure their affairs in a tax efficient way. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I do. Um, and in 14, when I first got involved in Bitcoin, I sort of devised a structure where you could hold Bitcoin in your IRA while still holding your own private keys, which is obviously very tax effective. So that's what I was doing at that time. And at that time, no one cared about it. Uh, <laughs> in 2014, no one cared about it at all. I devised the structure for myself. And then I was like, ah, I'll start offering it to my clients. I know how to do it, right? So uh, I did. And uh, for a while, that was not a popular structure. And then that took off in 17. So yeah, let's dive into this structure. The, the ability to control control the private keys into two or three multi-sig is the most fascinating part to me. The fact that you're able to put this away in a uh, tax-reduced vehicle uh, and still have complete control over it sort of messes with my mind a little bit. How does this work? So, yeah. So the generally the problem with an IRA, like anybody that's tried to invest in Bitcoin either through an IRA or a 401k probably knows, they're by their nature custodial accounts. Right. So someone else, a third party has to be holding the asset for you. Um, and in the case of, a, of an IRA, it actually has to be an entity that's licensed by the IRS. Um, well, either a, be a bank or a licensed non-bank custodian by the IRS. So 
that really is bad for a couple reasons. Number one, most of these custodians just aren't going to mess around with it, right? They don't want to hold an asset like this. They want you trading stocks and bonds where they can earn commissions or mutual funds. Um, and secondly, even if you do find the rare custodian, and they are out there, that will hold your Bitcoin for you, you're trusting them. That's like any other custodial solution. It's like keeping your Bitcoin in Coinbase, right? Not your, not your uh, keys, not your Bitcoin. So what I did back then when I f first got involved in investing it for my own retirement funds, um, I took a structure that had previously been applied to private real estate transactions and applied it to Bitcoin. And in a nutshell, the way it works, you still legally, to get the tax benefits, need this third-party custodian, right? Licensed custodian. But there are custodians out there, again, mostly from the real estate industry, um, that what they will do is they will allow you to form a limited liability company. They only, the only asset they hold title to is the li limited liability company. You as the account holder are appointed manager of that limited liability company, meaning you have full control over all of its assets. And then any contributions from the, uh, into this IRA drop down from the custodian into the LLC where you personally have control over them. And then, so in the case of Bitcoin, what you do at that point is typically you'd open up an account on an exchange in the name of that LLC. You don't have to do that. You could buy the Bitcoin on local Bitcoins if you wanted to, or however you want. But most people, to get the best rate, will open an account on an exchange in the name of that LLC, buy their Bitcoin. And then as manager of the LLC, they have the power to transfer it off the exchange into a hardware wallet. Um, you can do a multi-sig, you know, I've actually talked to Unchained Capital. They're willing to take on this sort of stuff. Uh, so that's generally how the structure works and you have full control over it. Just the same way you'd have control over all your other keys. So, you know, them, you know, the Bitcoin's there. And what are the included tax benefits of this type of structure? So, uh, twofold, uh, well, I shouldn't say twofold depends on what you do. So you can either, there's really three different things you can do. Uh, most people have the choice between doing it as a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA. If you're self-employed and none of your employees work under a thousand hours a year other than you and or your spouse, you have a third option called a, self, a solo or self-directed 401k, which I'll get into at the end. So with the traditional IRA, the big benefit is if you have a bunch of big pot of money sitting in an old 401k from an old employer, you can roll it over tax-free into this setup and then invest some of that in Bitcoin. And you don't have to roll all of it over. You can just roll a portion of it over, right? Um, so that's probably the biggest driver that I get is like people that have, you know, I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in this 401k from an old employer. I roll it over tax-free and I can allocate part of it to Bitcoin. Um, and I've even had some people do that because their employer allows... Um, access to Grayscale Bitcoin Investment Trust. Mm -hmm. But what, but that, as you know, trades at a premium. So what they've been able to do is get like 25% more Bitcoin, right? Because they sell their Grayscale, roll it over into this, and then they buy back in their, at their Bitcoin 25% cheaper, um, depending on what the premium is at an at exact given point in time. time. Exactly. Not yeah. a bad deal, though. Yeah, exactly. So that's one. That's if you're doing the traditional IRA, that's usually what I see. People that are not looking to roll over from a 401k will usually do a Roth IRA. Uh, the Roth IRA, the advantage to that is when you spend your Bitcoin at some point in the future, let's say you retire, it's tax-free. So, you know, when you buy your Bitcoin now, when you eventually spend it, you have capital gains tax owing. Uh, with the Roth IRA, once you own Bitcoin in a Roth IRA, you've eliminated tax forever. 
um, you know, in perpetuity. And then for the self-employed people that fit the um, example I gave before, they can do the self-directed 401k, which is even better because you can have Roth and traditional sub-accounts. So when you contribute money to the traditional sub-account, you get a t- an upfront tax deduction. Uh, when you contribute it to the Roth sub-account, you don't get the upfront t- tax deduction, but you do get that tax-free forever benefit, just like a Roth IRA. This is uh, very appealing. Very appealing. Yep. Because taxes are a huge problem right now. They are, yeah, and that you know, one of the I mean, I sh- this is not the podcast to talk about this one. I am a Bitcoin maximalist, so don't take this the wrong way. But a lot of my clients too that are heavy traders, like that trade in and out of Bitcoins and altcoins, it's great for them because they would churn like crazy uh, all kinds of capital gain stuff, and this eliminates that. Or e- even if you're not an altcoiner, and I hope that you're not. Um, uh, you know, if you're just trading a lot because you're a technical analysis guy, you know what I mean? If you're a big follower of Murad or whatever, and you're trying to get in and out at exactly the right time to maximize your Bitcoin, uh, this is going to help you because you don't have to worry about if you get out at the peak, owing a bunch of capital gains tax. Yeah. So what is the, uh, the demand for this product been looking like since 17 you said it was tepid for a little bit then yeah no one ca- so the 14 15 16 no one cared for a couple of reasons one like bitcoin wasn't it, it didn't have as much mainstream appeal and then two the other thing that was that the other thing was the bitcoiners of that era and i was one of them right but tended to be really skeptical of anything that even like remotely talked about taxes. So like <laughs> I remember I wrote like an article for Coindesk back then. I think it was in 14 about like the, it was tax consequences of some sort of Bitcoin transaction. And all the comments were like, this guy's like a secret fed. He's like working for the IRS. And it's, you know, it's not that at all. I mean, I don't care about people's personal business at all, whether they pay their taxes or not. I just provide the advice and it's, you know, your choice whether or not, obviously, you know, to follow that. So in 17, things changed because there just became this mainstream knowledge about Bitcoin. People wanted to get involved. So that's when I started really getting contacted a lot by people. And one of the more fulfilling parts of it has been, believe it or not, a lot of people that I get are not hardcore Bitcoiners. They're people that are new to Bitcoin. Really? Yeah. So there are people that like I get to like sort of, in addition to setting up the structure for them, kind of introduce them to Bitcoin. One of the things I tweeted about recently is, you know, our mutual f- friend Pierre and his node launcher. Um, I got to recommend that to like a few clients this year that were like, hey, like, you know, I got this set up and we got through the process. Like, I've heard kind of that it might be a good idea for me to run a full node. Do you have like some suggestions about that? And I can be like, yeah, I really think you should run a full node. Here's you know, an easy way to do it. Here's so that's been do, really cool. Here's the way to do it in two clicks. Yep. And a lot of them too have been, uh, I'd say most of my clients are over 40, really? um, which I also like find kind of neat. Um, I mean, I definitely have younger guys that are, that are interested in it as well, but it's, it's, I get a lot of people that are like 50 years old. This is their very first exposure to Bitcoin. And what do you think? What do you think is sort of making them open to Bitcoin? I've been talking a lot about the decade mile marker sort of being a psychological uh, checkpoint that Bitcoin has hit this year. Do you think that anything like that comes into play or do you think it's just... Yeah, I think the long, it's a Lindy effect thing, right? Like yeah. the longer it's around, the more people will take it seriously and they're reading about it, about institutions getting involved. Like they're, 
they might see on CNBC some story about fidelity or, you know, or whatever, getting into the custody of this. And they're like, oh, maybe this is something that I should be looking into. I need to be aware of. And, you know, they kind of fall down the rabbit hole. You know, they kind of see why it's valuable. And if they already had a background in sound money to some extent, then it's a really natural transition, you know? Yeah. And no, it's crazy. Uh, it's crazy to see people coming around to it, especially the older cohorts. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, because sound money is popular among the older set, and if you need evidence of that, just tune into the news channels and look at the commercials for gold that are constant. I mean, nonstop uh, on the news channels, and that those shows are generally watched by the fifty plus audience. So, I don't think in the long term they're going to be as hard to win over to Bitcoin as a lot of people think for that reason. No, and again, like as Lindy grows, as Blocks continue to be produced without the network going down. I think it's just inevitable. Um, and obviously people like you building tools to make it more useful is helpful as well. I'm trying. So getting into it in earnest in 2014, where's, where we sit now, 2019, like how far have we come from your perspective from then to now? That's a great question. So the biggest change to me between 14 to 19 is... Um, lightning, the, the really the, matru- the maturation of lightning. Because I always kind of assumed, and I just recently heard someone else talking about this that I can't remember, but I had the same thought process at the time, that what would eventually happen is, you know, we, we weren't going to be able to do all of our tra- transactions on chain, right? Like your cup of coffee was never going to be on chain for two reasons. One, the capacity issues and two, just, you know, waiting for three or six confirmations or whatever you wanted to do. Zero conf never made sense to me. Right. So what I had always kind of figured was going to happen because I'm not nearly as smart as the people that came up with lightning. Um, I always just sort of assumed that we'd have a, we'd have centralized payment networks for the smaller transactions. And then for your larger transactions, you'd be doing on chain. That's always what I kind of thought was going to happen. And I still thought that was an improvement over the current system because unlike the current system where you can't just start up your own Visa or MasterCard network, right, because you don't have access to the Federal Reserve, this would be an open backbone so that there would be a much, going back to distributism, a much larger distribution of payment networks out there that would have to cooperate with each other. So that's always kind of what I thought was going to happen and where ultimately things would go if Bitcoin... um, actually gained adoption as a payment method rather than just a store of value. And then when lightning came along, I was like, this is, this is never going to happen. This is like the most complicated thing in the world. Because <laughs> if you just read about how lightning works, it seems like, like a Rube Goldberg machine, right? Like, like 61 page white paper, right? Or yeah. Pages, I was like, I was like, like, this is, this is nuts. But uh, I was very happily proven wrong. I mean, you know, we, well, I mean, obviously it's still in its experimental stages right now, but, uh, the amount of adoption and growth we've seen in Lightning has just been, the speed of it has just blown me away. It's been crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable compared to the adoption of, say, base layer Bitcoin, right? Like how much faster this has been. I mean, it's, people have really only known about Lightning for like a year. Like, you yeah. know, I, you know, I know there's been certain people that have been working on it longer than that, but not most people that I are think, involved in it. Yeah. I think it was thrust into the consciousness during like the consensus keynote last year. Right. And at that time, like people weren't really, I mean, you know, there wasn't a lot of development on lightning at that time. No, you know, and it's crazy to see like where the node topography is. Like it looks like lightning. 
I like the comparisons of Lightning to the early internet, like in terms of like connectivity and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to like Bitcoin at the protocol level, because you look at the node growth, it's just insane. Yep. It's crazy. And so you recently had a, a PR merge into C Lightning. What were you working on? So very small, very minor one, but I was still like um, inordinately jazzed about it. It was a, <laughs> it was a, uh, you know, because you work on all these projects that are your own projects and that's cool. But like when you get something merged into something that's like a foundational protocol thing, like sea lightning, it kind of has like a special place in your heart, no matter how small it is. So it was actually a security fix. I, it was the log basically with the logging that sea lightning produces, I, uh, patched it so that some sensitive information is redacted in the logs as it goes along. That seems pretty important. It seems like a, a nice merge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's useful, right? So like, that's what I was pretty excited about. Some people talk that like their first merges, um, into like Bitcoin core or a lightning protocol were like fixing a typo and a comment. So I did get like, I'm like a little bit past that. So that, <laughs> that was like, that was pretty cool. So yeah, so I was pretty psyched. Working with Lightning, are you see Lightning only? Do you work with LND? Um, experimenting with everything? Um, well, most of the open source work that I do is actually related to BTC Pay Server. Mm -hmm. um, and BTC Pay Server supports both C Lightning and LND. And very soon, thanks to Andrew Calamari, it's also going to support Eclair. Um, he's working on that right now. So through working with BTC Pay, I definitely see both. Um, on a personal level, I run C lightning. I kind of just get a kick out of it. Uh, it's written in C, which is like this, like hardcore kind of thing. So I guess I'm a little bit of a sadist. So that's always what I've, you know, personally used, but in testing, I mean, I do have an LND testnet node up and running just to make sure the stuff that I work on with BTC pay is, you know, uh, it shouldn't make a difference whether I'm running or LND or C Lightning, but I always test both just in case. Well, let's jump into BTC Pay because you're building a Python implementation, correct? Well, it's already built, so, so I I maintain maintaining. The, I maintain the Python client library for BTC Pay server. So, essentially, if you have a piece of software or a web app or whatever, and it's built in Python, and you want to integrate BTC Pay server for payments, uh, this library makes it very easy for you to do, um, and the way I actually became the maintainer of that library is sort of funny. I was not the original creator of the library, but I started um, doing all these other projects. Yeah, I predominantly code in Python, and I started doing all these other projects that work with BTC Pay. And Nicholas Dorier just kind of asked me one day, he's like, hey, do you want to take over just maintaining the library? And I was like, so I was like over the moon, right? <laughs> so I was like, yeah, absolutely. So like I jumped in there and um, you know, I've made some some improvements to the documentation, and then I also uh, created like a secondary, easier method for uh, pairing your app to your BTC Pay server. So that's been uh, that's been a lot of fun. Well, I think we here at TFTC have been leveraging your your work on the site that we're building and launching on Sunday. Nice. I uh, that's always good to hear. the The fact that people are using it is always the best part, and especially so you know someone like me. I went to school, despite being an attorney and a CPA, I started in the computer science program at Rutgers University. Yeah, yeah let's yeah. let's dive into this. How did yeah. you end up becoming a lawyer, CPA, bodybuilder, coder? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I... And Benjamin Button, all in one. Yeah, yeah. So back in the 90s, I actually started in the computer science program at Rutgers. Um, and, Gers. Yep. And at the time, I'm as New Jersey as someone could be. I've never lived outside of New Jersey a day of my entire life. 
You get that in-state tuition, you can't pass it up. You can't pass that up. No. Like, I remember my guidance counselor trying to sell me on going to, like, all these Ivy League schools. And this is, like, the worst humble brag in the world. But I got, like, a full scholarship to Rutgers. And I'm like, you're out of your mind, man. And (laughs) uh, when I see all the student debt issues nowadays, I'm like, thank God I didn't listen to that guy. You know what I mean? Like, you know, at any rate. So I went to Rutgers, started in the computer science program programming was a different world back then. Uh, you know, in turn, well, it's always stays, I guess, mostly the same, but the tools were a lot different back then. So I did that for a while. And at the time, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you don't always make the best decisions. So at the time I was working full time and going to Rutgers full time at the same time, which that wasn't a bad decision. That was a really valuable life experience. I was working as a salesman, which if you, as a first job is like the greatest thing in the world because it carries over into so many, other areas. So, but because I was like working in sales, I was like, you know what, like this computer science stuff, I actually have to like work at this. And there's so much other stuff in college that I can just like BS my way through and not have to even like screw around. So despite the fact that I was doing well in the computer science, I ended up majoring, I am finishing my degree in Spanish for two reasons. Number one, it's very easy. Uh, I didn't really have to study much or anything like that. And number two, if you've majored in Spanish and you went to college, the male female ratio in the classes is like 30. <laughs> if there were like 30 people in the class, sometimes it was 29 girls and me, you really? know, in the class. And that's like appealing when you're 20 years old. Right. So well, I guess Espanol. it's appealing now. Te hablas Espanol hoy? Si. Uh, hablo. Hablo Espanol. Yeah. Yo, yo, voy a, yo voy a decir que hablo Espanol, pero cuando viajar, uh, cuando viajo a un país en que, Español se hable. Uh, toma un poco de tiempo que uh, ajustar. ¿Qué país? Uh, he viajado a Cuba, he viajado a Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, yo vivía en Venezuela por tres meses cuando tenía 18 años. Ah, me hablo muy poquito. <laughs> <laughs> And that was speaking Spanish on Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, there you go. A little I bit love of brushing Spanish. up on it every once in a while. See, it's one of those things where, like, I could tell, like, what I just said, my grammar was horrendous there. I know. But it's like that. when I when I get when I'm in a country, it comes back. It's exactly once you're in there for like a, three days a week, and then I'm fine. See, when I was younger and I was working in sales, I would speak in Spanish to the Spanish language customers. So I used to use it every week and now I use it like, you know, like when I was in Cuba or when I was in Venezuela or I've been to Panama, a few places like that. And I will speak entirely in Spanish there, but like for the first like two days, my grammar is like atrocious and then it, <laughs> and then it like starts to come around. No, I know that. I know that feeling well. I speak very poor Spanish, but I love speaking it or trying to speak it at least. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful language. It really is. Yeah. Um, it's part of the romantic languages for a reason. Yeah. Very true. Um, so where were we? Oh, so I changed majors. Yeah. Yeah. Getting back to that. So I changed majors. I put programming down and I didn't pick it up again for 20 years. And then when I got back into, when I got into Bitcoin, um, there's a couple people that I really have to give a lot of credit to a couple of my friends. One of the first friends that I made in Bitcoin was Pierre Rochard. Right. And for those of you that incredible first friend to make. Yeah. Right. Uh, and <laughs> If for those of you that know his background, I mean, he's talked about this a lot, so I'm not really doxing him or anything here. Um, he, his background is not in programming at all. He was an accountant, right? And then got involved on the technical side much later. So, you know, 
after I met him and he kind of inspired me to start getting more involved in the technical side again. Um, so that's when I really started digging back into it. And a lot of it came back, you know, fairly easily because even though the language that I mostly write in now, Python essentially was a non-entity in the nineties, right? Uh, it, Python one, I think existed, but no one was using it. It was like an experimental thing. So the tools had all changed, but the concepts of programming had kind of stayed the same. So I did have a leg up there. So that was uh, what kind of inspired me to get into it. And then I'm actually a alumni as well of our friend Justin Moon's Biddle Bootcamp. Shout uh, out. Doing incredible things. I saw he just passed 100 uh, students officially. Yeah. Week. I mean, he's doing he's doing great work there. Um, and so are, uh, so are the students have spun out of that bootcamp. It's amazing they're all making, the different stuff they've done. Yeah. They're making uh, very big contributions all across the space. People have contributed to the node launcher from there. People have contributed to Jewel. Uh, just a ton of other projects. The Raspy Blitz project. Uh, yeah. Just really cool. Uh, Will Clark, who maintains the gRPC Python library for LND, came out of there. Yeah. What uh, what was your experience like during the bootcamp? Was really good. Um, you know, I was in like the I think the first co the first paying cohort. So he did like an unpaid one as like a test. I wasn't in that one. I was the first group of people that actually paid to be in the class. Um, and yeah, I mean Justin's a great teacher. Um. I also know Justin personally. We've uh, hung out a few times. He's a great guy, really interested in helping people learn. Um, unbelievably patient with people. You know, really, uh, re I had a really great experience in the boot camp. And that's how I actually got uh, my first contributions to BTC Pay, um, where like he encourages people in the boot camp to like do a project. And my project was I created the QuickBooks integration for BTC Pay server. And what's that been like? That's been cool. Uh, you know, it was a really good first project because it wasn't too huge of a project. It was something I could sort of dive into and really get it done in like a few weeks. And it was a good way to warm up getting back into the technical side after having been out of it for 20 years, um, you know, to learn even just like the tools. Right. Uh, so, for instance, I went through all the different tools that I used to put that together when I finished it. And almost none of them existed in 99. <laughs> so like even SQLite, which is the database, excuse me, that doesn't run on SQLite. It runs on Redis. Um, Redis didn't exist back then. Python wasn't really used back then. I mean, Vim, which is the text editor that I use, was probably one of the only things that was uh, still around. Was, still was around back then. Yeah. So that was a really good way to sort of jump in. And it fit my strengths in that. Um, one way you and I are very different is I know you're, you always have a very strong interest in UI UX stuff. Mm -hmm. I recognize it as incredibly important. I do not like working on it. So <laughs> like, I like being in the back, in the back end away from the user, like the users and all their problems, right? Like I like being like, like in the back end. So this was a entirely essentially back end projects. There's almost no front end of this at all. It's integrating the two back ends together. So that was a really good fit uh, for the type of stuff that I enjoy. So it was a fun project to work on. What's it like reapproaching uh, development engineering after 20 years away? Was it, uh, were you anxious, nervous getting into it? I don't know that I was nervous. Or were you just like, I need to pick this shit up and get it done? I was like, yeah, I just need to pick it up and get it done. There's definitely the pretender syndrome, right? Like it's like, I still probably wouldn't like just go out and say, oh, I'm a software developer, right? Because like, you know, it just doesn't feel right to say that. Um, but, 
yeah. I mean, it was actually kind of in a way easier than I thought, uh, only because these modern languages are so high level, which for people who are listening who are non-technical, high level means it has a higher level of abstraction away from the computer. Um, that they're actually much easier to write in than the stuff that was around, uh, you know, back when I was first doing it. So that was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, I've messed with Python a bit myself. It's powerful, man. The things you can do, especially with like API calls and stuff like that. Yeah, you could do so much with so little code and you're so, like the other language that I write in far less frequently and I'm far less talented in is C and they're kind of opposites, right? C, you have to be, you have to manage your own memory manually a lot of the time. You have to think about stuff like that. Where with Python, you don't have to think about the physical computer at all. You can really just think about things in the abstract and get it to do what you want. Yeah. Um, no, again, it's like I am. I'm like more visual. I do not have the patience to to work on code. That's the. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. That's my problem. I can't stare at a computer screen and stare at lines know, of code. I don't know that I could do it as a job because I don't know that I would have the patience to do it and work on what I'm told to be working yeah. on. Like I, I have the patience to do it only because I only work on things that like I find interesting because I don't do it to make money. Um, so that's sort of the, I guess, probably the only reason that I'm able to do it. And is there anything more interesting to work on right now than Bitcoin? No. I don't know. I'm thinking. It's, uh, that's what I had James O'Byrne in here earlier. And this is actually, uh, and we've recorded an episode and we got into a conversation and it's actually a common theme actually interested to hear your thoughts on this. Like a lot of guests that have come through the studio have said that Bitcoin has provided optimism that wasn't there before. Um, it's emergence. Like, is this similar feeling to you? Yeah. On, on, in a lot of different ways. Um, so let's, let's jump into it. The, the first of which I guess goes back to one at the very beginning of the recording here, I spoke about, you know, sort of being a distributist and that's sort of, for a lot of the late 20th and early 21st century was sort of like a hopeless feeling, right? Because everything is centralizing more and more. Um, yeah, let's, let's jump a little bit more into distributed. Yeah. Then. Um, so you were saying don't ever let decisions that could be handled at certain levels, or it be the family, uh, local, local county, state, yep. national government. What are like some examples of how this would progress and where you would stop uh, a decision from going to the next level? Sure. So uh, school is like a great example of this, right? Like mm -hmm. school would be the distributist outlook on school would be you want that decision to be made at the family level, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because families should be capable of determining the ways in which they want their children to be educated as opposed to the local government level or increasingly, you know, from a distributist perspective, the department of education is like the worst thing in the world because how that's a, you're moving something that should be at a family or maybe community level. And you're moving it all the way up to the federal government level, which is as far away from that as you possibly could go. Yeah. This is where they're uh, designating pizza sauce as vegetables. So. Exactly. Right. Things like that. <laughs> and, and the other you know, reason that distributism is kind of close to my heart is, you know, I'm a small business person. And one of the things from a distributist perspective is not even just government, but economically businesses should be organized in such a way that the smallest business unit that can provide something efficiently provides it. So something like a corner store, you know, a distributist would want that to be family owned, right? Cause it's perfectly economical and efficient for, to have, a million different corner stores owned by a bunch of different families that might not apply to your electricity utility company. Right. But when possible, you want things to be managed at the smallest level possible. It increases freedom for everybody. Cause that's what this is really all about. The more that you centralize uh, 
an industry, and we've seen this with banking, right? People getting debanked. If banking was less centralized, less people would be getting debanked um, for just purely political or belief system reasons. So Bitcoin's given me a lot of optimism in that regard because when we, when we're talking about returning to sound money, we're not going to have that Cantillon effect anymore that favors the incumbents over the upstarts, right? That's that's a killer, man. Like if you're trying to do something new and you got to deal with incumbents and these people have all these built-in advantages, they're not competing with you on an equal level. And you know, one of the things that I like the most about uh, Safedine's work is one of the things he's talked about is. When, when we last had a sound money system in the 19th century, the average company had like, this number is wrong, but it's directionally accurate, like 17 employees or something. It was way less than, than it has today. Um, so I'm hopeful that we can move to an environment with a more distributed number of businesses uh, across, across the economy. And I think, you know, going back to something that you and I have spoken about earlier, the other reason this makes me hopeful is we've seen a rise in socialistic attitudes across the world. Mm-hmm. And I think, unlike a lot of people, I actually think this uh, belief in socialism, if you're a young person today, even though I'm certainly not a socialist, uh, is entirely reasonable. Because if what you knew of capitalism was the croniest sort of corruption of capitalism that we have in today's day and age— then, you know, based on that knowledge, it's entirely reasonable to say, hey, I think socialism might be a better solution, especially since these younger people did not, you know, I saw the last uh, decade plus of the Cold War, most of these young people did not, right? So they don't, they don't even really have that as a frame of reference to, to turn them off to it. So we really need to have a better, fairer system in order to cut the head off the snake, I guess, so to say, so that this is not so appealing to such a large number of people, which is one of the reasons why, like when people talk about socialism, I try not to get into the whole, uh, just like ranting and raving about, you know, deaths and how terrible socialism is and Stalin, even though all that stuff is true, it's just not persuasive to young people. It's a lot more persuasive to say, Hey, I hear what you're saying. I hear why you're frustrated. Your frustrations are in fact very reasonable but here's a much better solution to that problem. Yes, your prescription's off a bit. Right, Let's exactly. Let's push you down this, this path. Exactly. When you see when really bad atrocities happen, whether they're communist or the Nazis or whatever, it's because people were pushed to their limit. They were told to basically, when they would raise concerns and were basically told to screw off, and then they felt like the only other option was these horrible authoritarian systems, right? So that's what I really, you know, I'm very hopeful that with Bitcoin we can avoid that sort of thing. Yeah, and the way you avoid that, right, is opening markets as making them as free as possible. And exactly, Bitcoin yeah. is doing this, and we've used this example here the last few weeks in particular, but my co-host on Rabbit Hole Recap, Matt O'Dell, providing liquidity to the Bitcoin rabbi when he was selling his, yep. his children's books. That's an example of nobody asked permission. Uh, there was no like regulatory agency stepping in the middle asking for information about those two opening the channel. So they just did it. It's two uh, individuals, two entrepreneurs uh, that want to work together have agreed uh, off the network that they will work together and just simply were able to act and nobody could stop them from doing that. And that's a real free market, unlike like when politicians talk about the free market, it's usually just like a cover for like favors to, you know, already established players, right? Like, you know, 
in implementing a regulation in such a way that it favors the established players over the upstarts. That's well, usually what you know passes for free market nowadays. Talk about your uh, area expertise: tax, accounting, and the software in that industry. And yes. So they sort of prevent free market from emerging in this area, correct? Yeah, I mean, QuickBooks has essentially a monopoly in the United States on small business accounting software. I mean, larger businesses use their own uh, use their own software oftentimes, but particularly Intuit. Um, on the accounting side, there are some other players, um, and it would be easier for people to get in on that side. It's the tax side where it's just so hard because the tax code is so complex and the thing people forget about is it's not even just the federal tax code. If you're going to put out tax software, you have to comply with, well, there's 40, 43 states have state income tax. So uh, 43 different state income tax codes. So there's that by its nature means that it's going to be really hard for a new player to get involved. And these tax software companies, there's uh, there's only like three or four big ones now, and Intuit being the biggest. Uh, there are a few others. They just successfully, in fact, lobbied uh, Congress, right, to not to mm-hmm. not allow the IRS to provide free tax filing. Uh, how's that? How's that? How can you block that? They just, I mean, they have the ability to do so. It is wild. Not that um, I'm expecting the IRS to come out with some crazy software, but it's just like. Well, they've, you know, I don't know, like, how far along they had gotten, but for years now, They've talked about a system like some other, the not the current commissioner, I think it was the commissioner before, um, said he favored a system like many other countries have where, so right now, when your employer files your W-2, your mortgage company files your 1098, all that stuff, that's all electronically filed with the IRS, even if you get the paper copy, right? So the IRS theoretically should have that all in all their systems. So you could have a system where you just logged into the IRS's website and most of the data was pre-populated. And a lot of countries already have that. And uh, God, I think it was Shulman, the last commissioner, who was speaking about that. Like, though, that's eventually where we're going. But I guess not based on, you know, what we've seen over the past couple months. How, taxes are so goddamn complicated. It's like, have you seen the meme going around on Twitter? Like, me, like how do, or it's like a, a meme. It says me. You know, like talking to the government, you know exactly how much I own. They're like, yep. And they're like, are you going to tell me? They're like, nope, you have to figure it out. And if you don't get it right, you can go to jail. Yeah. Like, why is it so hard? It's, well, the thing is, I mean, the meme is a little misleading as it works for individuals, right? I mean, that the government basically does know what you owe just based off the documents that have been filed on your behalf. And that's why, like, a lot of these tax software providers, like Intuit, I think, has a thing for your phone now where you can just snap photographs of all of the forms and it just pre-fills everything for you and you're good to go. Um, where it's really complicated is for self-employed and business people, what's deductible, what's not, how to depreciate things, things of that nature. And that's just a, uh, a product of the fact that individual industries and companies lobby for all different things and... If you want to do something to make the code simpler, the problem is it's going to create winners and losers, and the losers are going to lobby to not get that thing changed. So that's just, you know, that's unfortunately just the nature of it. Yeah, the nature of it sucks pretty hard. Um, yeah, not a big fan of, I mean, if somebody is starting a business and trying to figure that out, especially Bitcoin or where it touches Bitcoin, it's like, holy fuck. What One of my hopes, and this is probably a little, a little bit pie in the sky and utopian, is that maybe over time, 
if Bitcoin takes off, we move away from an income tax-based system more to a property tax-based system. I think that's fair. If you're going to have taxes, I think that that's fair and it's less, um, it's less of an invasion of privacy, right? Like I'm not saying it's not invading your privacy at all. It is, but I do think it's less because income tax is extremely, uh, privacy. And I don't know if invasionary is a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, because you're really have disclosing all the financial transactions that you're involved in kind of, right. And it creates this panopticon where the government's watching your bank accounts and, and, and you know, all this sort of stuff. Whereas like a more of a, a property or transaction tax based system, a lot of that stuff would be public anyway. Um, you know, like for instance, property transactions are all public. Re- I'm talking, when I say property, I'm talking about real estate at this time, mm-hmm. you know, that's all public record anyway. Um, so I'd rather move to a tax system, you know, based, I think more on that, or even a sales tax is less privacy killing for that reason too, because the merchant collects it. Right. And the merchant doesn't have to take all the merchant needs to record is the sales price, right? The merchant doesn't have to report your, your name or your address or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's always befuddled my mind why we never attempted like a consumption tax regime over an income tax. Right. Yeah. I mean the main, the argument against the consumption tax is that it's regressive and that poor people consume a larger percentage of their income. Yeah. And therefore they kind of, they're the losers in the move from consumption to, um, the way from income to consumption. But I think if you paired it with a property tax type system, um, which could be based on land values. It could also be based on natural resource consumption on land. There's a lot of different ways you could do it. I think it might offset some of the regressive effects of uh, such a tax. Yeah. I think we need to do something. I think we need to change it up a little bit. I don't know. I don't know if we're going down the right path. We're two years away from uh, tax receipts being less than the interest owed on the debt. Um, that's as that's as much of an entitlement and spending problem as anything else. Things like that, like Social yeah. Security. Are you expecting to... Well, you're self-employed. Like, I don't, I don't plan on seeing Social Security that I'm contributing to. Right. Well, I mean, we self-employed, we still have to pay into Social Security. So yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. It's going to be uh, my if you if you told me that I had to guess what they're going to do with Social Security, I would think that they'll start means testing it, and that's how they'll end up saving it. What do you mean? So, uh, and I'm not saying this is that I support this or it's a good idea. So right now, the idea behind Social Security is. Everybody pays in, everybody collects, right? Like it doesn't, you could be a billionaire. You could still collect social security because you've been paying in all these years. That's what I think out of necessity. If I, this is again, guessing, not hoping is eventually going to change is there'll be some sort of thing where if you have so much other income or so much in other assets, your social security will be reduced or eliminated. So it'll become more like a, what? It'll become less like a pension program, which is how it works now, and more like a welfare program. That would be my my prognostication. I uh, would not be surprised if that comes to fruition at all. Yeah, that seems because the the alternative would be uh, raising taxes, and you know politicians tend to look at this stuff in terms of like who, what the largest number of people getting angry, and people will get angry about changing it to a means tested program, but less so than taxes that they're going to taxes they get hit with immediately changing it to means testing they don't get hit with for 20 30 years because they won't what they'll do is they'll say okay everybody who's already collecting social security is not subject to the means testing it's 
the young people that are going to get, you know, the shaft. Yeah. Couple that with a declining birth rate and uh, immigration policy is sort of in flux right now. It's a weird generational thing. You know, I read something really interesting about birth rate. Uh, It's just as a little bit of a tangent, but I just I just saw this. I just saw this yesterday. The study was done. One of the things that we're always told is this crisis is Japan, right? Because their birth rate's low. Japan has zero immigration. So how are they going to support, um, how is the system going to be able to continue to function? Two interesting things about that. Number one, it seems to actually be running fine. Um, like there's some weird stuff going on and that there's like, there's some small towns where you can like get houses for free if you're willing to have a kid. Um, but it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. But aside from that, the interesting part about this study was Japan's birth rate is actually not low by industrial country standards. It's, I should say, it's in wedlock birth rate is not low by industrial country standards. It's actually high. It's only that they have essentially zero out of wedlock births in Japan. Interesting. Which is the difference in birth rate. So I don't know what to make of that, but it's very interesting. Well, there's less people getting married. And we talk about the Japanification of the world in this podcast a lot because Japan is a perfect example of a central bank that started QE in the sure. 90s, has been doing it for a couple decades. But and I don't think this has anything to do with monetary policy, but there's also like a, a culture in Japan where there's like millions of recluses who just like yes. literally yeah. do not peer out into the world. They just live in seclusion by themselves. And I don't think that's necessarily unique to Japan in the modern world because you see... It's, to me, it's not all that different from people that are behind their computer all the time chatting instead of going out and seeing their friends, right? I think it's just the natural, one of those is a natural evolution from the other. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny. Um, but back to like the Bank of Japan, like they, like, it seems stable, but they own like 75% of the ETF market. Well, that I think is not, yeah. yeah. Let me be clear. Yeah, that end of it, I don't <laughs> think is sustainable. Like the central bank uh, investing in the stock market. Yeah. Well, Yellen thinks we should be doing it soon. A lot of people think that we should be doing it soon. And that, I guess, is, I guess you can think about your perspective on that. Uh, if you think that that is a good thing because it's accelerationist, uh, some, I've heard that argument. So Yeah, no, there's a lot of accelerationists out there. That's why uh, people want to secure the bag with Andrew Yang. Uh, right. Uh, you get your $1,000 a month, buy Bitcoin. <laughs> and uh, some people think that's the ultimate solution, right? Well, somebody, well, they do, and I, I can see him winning. I know it's a, a long shot right now, but I can see him having like a similar Trump trajectory where, and it, it sort of fueled by uh, a perceived, well, it's not even perceived, it's a palpable uh, injustice that was served after 08 with the bank bailouts. We basically had socialism for the people that caused the crash. Now this is an overt socialism for the people who were affected by it. And they're going to be like, we want ours. We want to get our back. Let's secure it. I think he'd actually have a better shot in the general election for that reason. The, not to be too political, but the Democratic primary is not at all similar to the Republican one mm-hmm. um, in that there's a lot more money involved in the Democratic one from very centralized sources, corporate America, unions, things of that nature. Yeah, WikiLeaks proved this. Yeah, so exactly, right, exactly. So it's much easier for their party elders to shut out an insurgent than the Republican primary where there really wasn't a whole lot they could do about it. Yeah, well, I, I think I think Yang's going to force the issue. That man's on a tear right now to get out in front of as many people as possible. He certainly is, yeah. It'll be interesting to see whether they um, implement this two-tier debate structure to keep him off the main stage. Right. I don't know if you've heard about that. Yeah, yeah. they've been talking about it in Veep a couple times, too. Okay. Season. Um, but 
I probably won't vote anyway, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, to me, at least, I think it's all bullshit. Uh, is that is that a bad? Is this somebody who's younger than you, like looking at me, like who doesn't care about the politics? No, I don't think that that's bad. I I I see the arguments on all sides for that. I definitely respect people that don't vote, um, and I also respect people that say, "Hey, yeah, it sucks, but I try to pick the least lesser of the evils." And then there's some people that just say, yeah, I vote. I vote for unrealistic candidates just because I feel like I have a voice that maybe eventually the more people that choose to do that, what was once considered unrealistic or not mainstream becomes, you know, to be considered more realistic or mainstream. I don't know the answer to which one of those things is better. So I respect everybody's kind of opinion on that. Yeah, that's what uh, James and I were touching on this, too. Like, what is what does the future world look like, especially if we believe in like the sovereign individual thesis that uh, governments become smaller, uh, maybe return to a more distributist like world where uh, people are able to store their wealth in Bitcoin and therefore decide what they pay into and buy into. That's a really good point. And one of one thing I want to touch on because you just brought it up and it triggered something in my head. One of the big pieces of optimism, just going back before I address your most recent question here, um, your earlier question about what has it made you optimistic about? One thing I heard that I've always thought, and the only other person I've heard talk about it is actually Masir on your podcast, Mm -hmm. um, how absurd it is that we expect like a dentist or a lawyer or a, a gardener or whatever to like have to invest in the stock market just to be able to have any sort of reasonable store of value. I mean, that's bonkers, right? right. Like expecting, I mean, that's nothing against, it's not that I'm saying these people aren't intelligent. Uh, it's just that they're focused on other stuff. You have to be focused on like your main job. You don't, you, you're not able to like study markets and figure out how to invest the best way possible. That's crazy. So what you're left to doing is, some people actually can be good at it, right? They're, uh, despite having a job outside of financial services, that definitely can happen. Or you have to hire a retail financial investment advisor, and most of that industry is not very good, right? No. Because if they were good at it, they'd be wor- they'd be millionaires themselves, right? Or they'd be working for whales. They wouldn't be working with Main Street clients. Like so Ameripose. it's one of the more unfair things we see out there, and. There are a lot of big winners, namely the financial institutions in that regard, but there's your average person is a big loser. And if they had a store of value that wasn't like the stock market, I think they'd be a lot more, a lot less likely to make such a big dive into the market. They w- it, w- it wouldn't be a necessity anymore. You'd be able to just save your money and retire. Yeah. Force chase for yield. I don't think that's advantageous for anybody. No. And it's why we get all these crazy bubbles, right? And, and you know what I mean? The stock market, in my opinion, is essentially entirely driven just by the central bank. Like, I don't think, I actually don't think the stock market communicates any valuable information at all. Like, I think it's just like, it's just like a wacky thing based on where the central bank sets the rates and we're just constantly inflating and popping bubbles at this point. It's not to say the stock market couldn't be a valuable communicator of information in the event that we had a sound money system. I think that it would for two reasons. Number one, it, the price levels would not be so radically affected by interest rates. And number two, the quote-unquote dumb money wouldn't be in, overwhelming the quote-unquote smart money. So you'd have a much more effective, you know, sort of communication of pricing there. Did you see the uh, the Impossible Burger IPO yesterday? 
I heard about it. I didn't follow it very closely. I'm just like so. I'm so disgusted by like this whole war on meat thing. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not. I I talk to Michael a lot, Goldstein, and I'm not a hundred percent carnivore like he is. But I'd say 90% of my daily calories come from meat and eggs, right? So I'm pretty close. I do eat vegetables, but I recognize that your main health food, the main driver of your health is meat, right? And it it bothers the hell out of me that basically we've got this war on meat going on, predominantly in my opinion, because plant-based food just has a much higher profit margin. So they're able to lobby for, you know, for instance, government standards that favor basically vegetarianism, right? I mean, look at here in New York City, uh, it was like two or three weeks ago, I think I remember seeing on the news, they eliminated meat out of schools every Monday, right? I think they're doing meatless Mondays in public school public, here. I don't know if it's meatless Mondays. I think public schools are just disavowing meat in general. Yeah, I mean, that's a, wh- whichever it is, I mean, that's a great no example. Hot, I've no, no hot dogs and some other type of meat are definitely not being Not served. allowed. I, yeah. I think... It's no meat altogether on Mondays now they're doing in New York City public schools, which is bananas. That's not good for the kids. But the people, the crazy part about it is the people that are implementing that policy probably do think that it's that they're legitimately doing a good thing. You know, never attribute to malice what you could attribute to incompetence. Mm -hmm. But the reason why they think that is they've been um, propagandized as such by people that do know better. Right. There are people that do know better that are put put out all this BS information basically to increase their own profits, which is bad, right? And they're able, what what makes it bad is they're able to use the government to enforce it. If, if they weren't using the government to enforce it, whatever, the market would sort it out. But they're using the government to enforce it. And that's slight side tangent. That's why I think one of the reasons we haven't seen a larger clamoring for for sound money is that people who are, disinterested in South mo- sound money, meaning that they would actually be hurt by it. Banks, the financial industry, uh, the media operating at the behest of people who would be, uh, you know, uh, disincentivized to sound money. They've propagandized us all to believe that inflation is not a problem, right? Sub- inflation subdued. Exactly. We're trying right. to get it up, actually. And the meat made me think of this, because if you look at things that actually matter, we've had crazy inflation beef being one of them believe it or not hogs beef if you look at the charts so i used to i worked for a managed futures fund back in the day and that's like finviz go on finviz.com you can look at the the heat maps there the the futures if you go to the futures commodities in particular or livestock in particular you'll see uh what are they called beef cattle and lean hogs are like on an exponential up and to the right. All right from 1972, right? When we, mm-hmm. when we went off Bretton Woods, that's where it starts. And same thing with housing, education, like all those things. We've had rampant inflation. We just hide our inflation by the massive technological process we've had. As I've said before, you can now afford five TVs, but you can't afford a house to keep them in. Right. Right. Whereas in 1960, uh, you could only afford one television, right? And you might've had to wait a few years to get it or whatever, but your wife stayed home from work and you could still afford to live in a house and educate your children and retire and everything was fine. And that's why I actually think that a lot of these, 
social justice movements that tend to demonize earlier eras and not that there weren't problems in those eras, right? I'm not saying that, but the reason we go so excessively in, in terms of demonizing them is because we don't want people to really know how much better stuff was in a lot of ways back then. Like if people really knew like in 1960, how much easier it was just to be a working class person in 1960 versus today, I think they'd be very, very, very mad. So what they do is they propagize, propagandize against those eras and at the same time divert people's energy and attention that would be normally on these economic issues into sort of these bizarre social, social justice issues. It's, yeah. I mean, that's been an, another theme here on this podcast is like the the incorrect framing in the mainstream of what our problems are. It's, exactly. It's yep. red versus blue. It's not actually, hey, money is the root of all evil. Money is money makes the world go run, run, uh, round. Stop worrying about the politicians, worry about the money is my viewpoint. Just think about all the people that support political candidates or parties or whatever that work directly adverse to their own economic interests solely for like these weird social reasons, right? You know what I mean? And most of that starts with the media. They just make one particular political position or group um, socially unpalatable. And then just basically due to peer pressure, you know what I mean? Like you, the, all these people end up voting a certain way regardless of what's good for them. Well, it's getting to a point, especially on the left, where like the, the Venn diagram of which you have to fall into to, to yeah. be in the party line is getting so outrageous that it's like, all right, you, you guys are getting a little crazy here. It is crazy. And what we, which it's interesting to me is we've seen what I wonder is, is Europe like ahead of us or are they just different? Because in Europe, the reaction to that has been just all these new parties have come up outside of the mainstream, which I view as a positive. Um, a lot of these parties that have popped up in uh, Italy, Spain this past week, uh, Eastern Europe, um, that are basically completely challenging the left-right paradigm altogether. It wasn't a comedian just uh, elected in Ukraine or something like that. Yeah, elected as president in mm -hmm. Ukraine. Yep, yep. So we have a Italy has a governing coalition, and I'm not saying that they're perfect. So don't like go crazy on me at Twitter with a bunch of facts. I'm just using this as an example. Um, Italy has a governing coalition of left right populist parties, and their main governing principle is left versus right stuff is stupid. You know what I mean? We're, we're way beyond that. And one of their other principles that I find personally appealing is GDP is a stupid measure. Why are we setting, Thank you. why are we setting economic policy? Our KPIs based on are GDP? way off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, so yeah, let's think about this debt fueled society. Like GDP and uh, CPI as sort of benchmarks that we crazy, right? Absolutely bananas because who, first of all, uh, this might make me sound like a leftist a little bit, but isn't a better measure of the economy something like wages or happiness? Yeah, <laughs> no, I know, like it sounds silly, but like, yeah, I mean, you know, if you create an economic system that through, let's say, excessive regulation that favors incumbents, GDP grows like crazy every year, but it creates a system where. You just have a bunch of peasants slaving away for one company that runs everything. I don't think most people would think that's good, but that is a really easy way to, to jack up GDP, right? Like yeah. setting policies that allow incumbents to become more and more profitable probably is going to raise GDP faster 
then uh, policies that promote a freer market with more competitors might take more time for that GDP to grow. I'd argue that's still a much better society. Um, it's closer to something that I would want to live in. So I actually, I've come to referring to this on Twitter as GDP maximalism. So <laughs> unlike Bitcoin maximalism, I am not impressed with GDP maximalism to the point where when I see a report or read a statistic about GDP, I completely ignore it. I'm like, you know, we did this and GDP did... I Whatever. Just totally ignore it. Who cares? It's like growth yeah. for growth's sake. It's like you yes. should not want growth for growth's sake. Let's That's exactly think right. about efficient growth. Let's think about sustainable growth. Let's think about building things that last decades into the future. And my, my favorite example of this is Chicago, and uh, the city of Chicago is notoriously corrupt. And uh, I've never been able to prove this was fact, but it's a pretty well known rumor in Chicago that. Uh, there are a lot of potholes in the spring after after a long winter of snow and salt and all right. that. And every spring, summer in Chicago is like gridlocked in traffic because they're fixing these these potholes. And the the theory is that they're using like mid mid grade gravel just to like keep a job uh, job coming back every year instead of using like something that would not break for a decade or two. They're just using lesser quality to ensure that there are jobs next year. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, that, I mean, I obviously I had no idea whether that's true, but it certainly makes sense because the contra the, the contractors I'm sure are donator are donors, excuse me, to all the political campaigns of the guys that award the contracts. And then the unions obviously are going to like that as well because it gets their guys, you know uh, it's, it's like the Keynesian thing where you pay people to dig dig holes and fill them back in. I yeah, think that's yeah. the, uh, the you, you dig holes, you put money in bottles, you, you bury them. And then yeah, yeah, people, yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to st- st- stimulate growth. the economy. <laughs> the, and the problem with it is like the worst problem is that eventually that bubble bursts, yes. right? Like that's the bigger issue. Like it always eventually bursts. And then we're just in this horrible, like, you know, crazy situation. And oftentimes, as we saw in 2008, when you try to reduce the impact of that burst, you don't address the underlying problems, and then that just makes the next bubble bigger. And you've seen that. I mean, it's like countries that let their banks fail, like Iceland, came out of the 2008 much better because they just basically, Iceland kind of just screwed everybody and said, uh, you know, this is what's going on. Like, you got yourself in trouble. And uh, by the way, I'm sure their reaction was not perfect. I'm just using it as an example. But that I think we missed a huge opportunity in 2008 to just wind down all of these banks that were insolvent. Well, I'm trying to remember. I think I believe we talked about this before we started recording about Boomerang by Michael Lewis. That was yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, if you freaks out there like want to get a good example of what Iceland did, that's like the first chapter of this book. But he goes, it's what we were talking about. Like, this this book is all over the world. So it goes from like uh, Iceland, Greece, Italy. Uh, Ireland, uh, California talk, jumps into CalPERS and stuff like that, but it's incredibly illuminating. And um, in Iceland, yeah, the story of Iceland is is asinine. What happened? Like they their bankers went ape shit for like four years. Oh, it was bizarre. Yeah, yeah. They had these banks that I mean, for those that are unfamiliar, like they had these online banks that would offer these crazy interest rates on savings accounts, and because they're in the EU. Like other EU countries could get in on it. So like if you lived in like, you know, you might live in a European country where the your savings account, I mean, these are made up numbers, or might it pay 3%. You could open a savings account at some Iceland bank where they were paying like 7%. You know what I mean? Like, so they had all kinds of like crazy. And then obviously the investment policies that you'd have to engage in in order to 
pay that rate of interest. Like it was just a crazy scheme they had going on there. And it was all interconnected. Like yep. from, and again, highly recommend this book. Easy read. Michael Lewis is an incredible author. It's a very good storyteller. Um, but it, it really highlights the interconnectivity and the, the interconnect, uh, interconnectivity of the global economy. And then the delegitimacy by which a lot of these countries entered the EU and a lot of what like our current system is built on, like Italy and, Greece arguably should have never been allowed in the EU. Uh, Goldman Sachs helped them cook their books for their debt to GDP ratio. And every, it was like a secret that everybody knew, but it was willful ignorance on all sides. You know, one of the, uh, I'm going to get some heat for this on Twitter, but uh, one of the best books that I most enjoyed about the Eurozone crisis is uh, Giannis Varoufakis's global minotaur. And he, I mean, Giannis is a Marxist, so I certainly don't agree with his policy prescriptions at the end of the book, but he does a great job of describing the underlying problem, I felt. And that's a fundamental balance of payments problem between the smaller southern economies and the larger northern economies. And this, you know, the cooking of the books that you mentioned was willful ignorance on all sides, right? It wasn't like... Germ uh, Greece wasn't trying to like scheme Germany into getting into the eurozone. Germany very much wanted Greece in the eurozone, so they'd be able to uh, not have such a strong Deutschmark and be able to ram imports down uh, Greece's throat. And ultimately, when it all blew up, get a really good deal on Greek assets. Right? I mean that that was the point of all this. It was these Northern European countries exploiting the Southern European countries and the Southern European politicians being too short-sighted and or stupid to figure out that this was the ultimate goal and playing along with the book cooking and all that. Because in the short term, joining the Eurozone helped them out tremendously because they got access to borrowing at much, much lower interest rates. When the Eurozone was new, Greece was able to issue bonds at rates that were roughly similar to like German rates, <laughs> right? So if you were a politician and you were only looking two, four years out, you're like, man, this is great. We're going to, we're going to get all this money. We're going to be able to borrow so much cheaper. I'm not going to have to raise taxes or whatever the case might be. But now, you know, people in those countries are paying a very steep price for it. And you just came from one of those countries, Greece in particular. I did. What was it like over there? Uh, Greece is a beautiful country. I had a great time. Uh, I am kind of like, uh, I'm like a very much into Hellenism. So like I, I enjoyed that aspect of it very much. Um, one of the things we were talking about earlier that I saw that was very interesting. I got the first, one of the first days I was there, there was a protest going on and I got handed a flyer and I was like, Oh, I, sorry, I don't speak Greek. And she's like, oh, I got an English one. She immediately handed me the, the English one. And it was an anti-central banking uh, uh, protest that was going on right in the square there. Uh, really? And the translation was kind of interesting because the closing line, I'm sure this makes more sense in Greek, but was like earth for humans only. So it's like that was like the closing line of the flyer. But most of it was... Uh, Are they anti-lizard people too or Yeah, something? I guess. I don't know what the deal was with that, but... That was very interesting. And the other two things that I saw that were close to my own heart, I guess, were I saw a, a building that was decorated with a slogan that said, uh, Greece, take the Brexit road, get out now. And I saw another building that was decorated with uh, a, a sort of a mural that said, NGOs, get the hell out of Greece. <laughs> I can get down with this, too. <laughs> um, I can definitely get down with those two slogans. Was, was this a central bank rally? They aware of Bitcoin or were they completely unaware of it? 
there was so much going on. I didn't get a chance to ask her. It's like one of those things where like, boom, you got your flyer. They're moving on to like the next person. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was not able to determine that. I didn't see Bitcoin anywhere when I was there. Like I didn't see any businesses or anything that were accepting it. But I mean, here in the States, you could come to New York and go your whole time without seeing, uh, a business that would accept Bitcoin or a Bitcoin ATM or anything too. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily, I very rarely run into them here. Yeah. We have like, there's, we have like a Bitcoin ATM company in New Jersey now, but it's like, I went to one of their locations to like, check it out. And the ATM was not working. So I, I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't review it because I promised Matt uh, Odell that like, I was like, oh, I'm going to go check this out. Like I'm going to like tweet about it. Um, Cause it was like the one location that wasn't near me and it's unfortunately it was not working. So that was kind of a bummer. Dicks. Um, yeah, Bit- I've never had a Bitcoin ATM experience yet. For as long as I've been here, I've never used one. I've never used one. When I was in Las Vegas, I saw them, right? Because that, um, this was a while ago I was in Vegas, but that, there's a burger joint out there that has like a slogan where you're like, you get a heart attack by eating there or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I don't. I've never been to Vegas. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's in old Vegas on Fremont street, I think. And I believe they like, they're like into Bitcoin if I remember correctly. Like, Boss. so they have like a Bitcoin ATM and everything there. Hopefully I'm telling that story correctly. I think it's them that had that, but yeah. Bitcoin seems sort of natural for Vegas, right? Vegas is like the wild west. It's like super unregulated. Yeah. So like I could definitely see that being the case. They're usually a lot of those Western States, not California, Oregon and Washington, but like before you get that far West are really competing. Like, so before I got into Bitcoin, the main area of my tax consulting practice was trust law. Mm -hmm. And with trusts, you can see those are the states that are always competing to have less regulation on the trust business to try and draw more business. So probably the premier trust jurisdiction in the United States right now is Nevada Mm -hmm. um, because they've been very aggressive with that. Other ones that are big on that are like Alaska, South Dakota, Wyoming. The outlier is Delaware. Um, Delaware always holding strong. Delaware always does. Yeah, hold strong. And it seems to be very similar with not necessarily Bitcoin, but cryptocurrency in general, right? We see like Caitlin Long in Wyoming, all the stuff going on out there for better or worse. Um, it, they're really trying to get in on this hard. So I could definitely see that being something that Nevada takes an interest in. It would seem to really fit their state ethos very well. Yeah, that and then the, uh, the clientele of Vegas in particular, poker players seem to be drawn to Bitcoin pretty pretty naturally. And you've got people that fly in from all, from all over the world too. So it, they probably find it somewhat appealing to not necessarily have to change into dollars. Yeah. Um, like when I was in I, uh, the biggest gambling resort I've ever been to, which made me think of a perfect market for Bitcoin, but their government probably won't allow it, is Macau. Uh, have you mm-hmm. ever been there? Never been to Macau. Okay, so I went there when I was in Hong Kong, and Macau makes Las Vegas look like... So I'm actually from Atlantic City area originally, so I'm not saying this with malice. Vegas makes like Atlantic City look small, right? Like Vegas, I mean, I've never been to Vegas, so I can't speak. AC, uh, AC's not the, the uh, premier destination. Right. So Vegas sort of the, the same way that Vegas makes Atlantic City look is how Macau makes Vegas look. Macau, I stayed in the Venetian Macau, which was the largest hotel in the world at the time. They have basically a shopping district in the in the Venetian, the size of a mall 
that is open 24 seven. You could go buy a Rolex at 2 AM in this place. Like it, the, Macau is just unbelievable. My room that I stayed in in Macau was 2,500 square feet what the hell? with my friend. <laughs> like the, it, it's just unbelievable. Anyway, you have all these rich people coming in from mainland China that need to change their currency, right? Because to, people from mainland China love gambling, but they need to change their currency. Interestingly, Macau doesn't allow gambling in the casinos in their own currency. They make you change to Hong Kong dollars. Macau really? has a, yeah, Mac, Macau's currency is the pataka, which is a pegged currency to the Hong Kong dollar. But even though they're pegged, you cannot gamble in pataka. The casinos won't, at least when I was there, casinos won't take it. They want afraid of losing its peg or something. I don't know what the situation is. And what's really interesting is if you like, if you're on the street, the stores even in the casino will not accept patakas. They want Hong Kong dollars. And, but if you're out on the street and just like, you just pay a mer- like one of the coolest things in Macau is there's a street for all the carnivores listing out, listing out there that's known for jerky, every kind of jerky you could imagine all these little family owned stores. It's so cool. And each like family owned store has like their own recipes and stuff for their jerky. And you buy it in these giant, like two foot by two foot squares, basically. And then you just kind of like tear it off and eat it. So if you pay with Hong Kong dollars in there, they give you your change back in Patakas. It's it's like uh, going to Costa Rica using dollars and getting a getting and you get their back. currency back. Yeah. yeah. So any, at any rate, yeah, like gambling seems in general, whether it's Las Vegas or Macau, seems to be a natural fit. Although in Macau, the Chinese government probably has enough influence that they wouldn't uh, be too crazy about that. Yeah. yeah, when uh, what's the other? Monaco is probably more would be more receptive to it, I would imagine. Yeah, you would imagine, right? Because Monaco doesn't have their own current. They're they're euros. Yeah, yeah. I think Monaco's on the euro, and they're pretty liberal with their gambling there. Too, they right? let you do. Yeah, I think Monaco is very uh, liberal about everything. I think like, that's why, <laughs> like uh, everyone tries to. You'll see this a lot, where like rich Europeans will try to get citizenship in Monaco because there's like no, I think there's no taxes. It's either no taxes or very low. That's a common common european thing to, to, to try and do need, very hard to do we need to get back to that here in the uh in the, the united states of america what citizenship to uh get rid of taxes no just like bring taxes down a little bit oh more. yeah of course you know yeah making a little bit competitive well look how much tax policy drives people's decisions um how many people retire to florida just for no state income tax and state income tax is nowhere near as big as federal right so mm-hmm. imagine all the you know benefits we could see with with uh, less federal tax on things like investment businesses you know stuff like that. All right, back to Bitcoin. Like, yeah. Do you think Bitcoin provides the opportunity? Like, does it provide that bargaining chip for us to be like, hey, if you're going to tax us, we have to we have to sort of accept the menu of taxes that you're giving us? Or do you think that that sort of view of how Bitcoin can change the dynamic between individual and state is a little overblown. What what I think is most likely is that it change it's going to make collection of income tax harder and therefore will move the tax system more towards property and consumption taxes. That would be that would be my guess, which I think is a net positive. Um, and we, and probably just less taxes overall, less taxes, less services provided by the government overall. But a move in that direction because for instance, a sales tax um, even like the, the perfect analog right now, and this is something where I have some experience. Let's say you're a business that's a very heavily cash business, like a laundromat or a corner store. 
So the government can't necessarily know that you're cheating on your taxes just by looking at your bank account. What they can do is they can look at your inventory. So they kind of can tell from your inventory. If your inventory is much too high a percentage of your sales, they know that you've been not reporting stuff and that you're, you've been short on sales tax, right? So systems like that, when you've got Bitcoin, which is similar to cash and that it won't necessarily be easy for the government to trace, I think they'll move to those sorts of taxes where they have an audit ability that isn't necessarily dependent on the banking system, if that makes sense. That does. It does. Um, it's a world that I want to live in and I hope comes to fruition. So let's talk timeline here. Like, uh, Where is Bitcoin now compared to your expectations when you first got in and where do you see it going in the near to medium term? So, I'm, uh, well, there's a couple ways to answer that question. Adoption-wise or tech-wise? Both. Let's okay. Both. So... Adoption wise, I would say it's like pretty much where I thought it would be. You know, I don't want to act like I'm an oracle and I like I knew I, I knew we were going to be exactly here, but it's within the range of what I thought reasonable at the time. Going forward, you know, I hear people talk about a lot of different predictions on when we're going to get like adoption and or hyper Bitcoinization. And one of my less popular opinions, so I want to make it clear that I don't wish for this. I just think this is that it's going to be slower than a lot of people think because if adoption really took off, right, really took off to the point where it was a threat to the dollar, the government in the United States would peg and would peg to the Bitcoin or to gold or to whatever to stop that takeoff. And the reason why they would do that is even some people will counter that argument by saying, well, they would lose their ability to inflate, which is such a powerful tool. Why would they do that? Well, if they sense that they're going to lose that tool anyway, They'd rather peg, they'd lose the inflation tool, but at least they'd still be able to spy on you, right? Because if you use Bitcoin, it's much harder to follow the flow of funds than using a Bitcoin-backed dollar. Bitcoin-backed dollar is no less or no more private than the current dollar we have today. It's just sounder. So in the event that that started to happen, the first time that would happen in the future, I think that they would peg. They'll eventually break it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like like has happened historically every single time that we've had a peg to gold or something like that. But it may take a few cycles of pegs and broken pegs before we have a system where Bitcoin is just the currency is the unit of account. Exactly. Right. Rather than Bitcoin backed dollars. Yeah. No, I could definitely see that. And so that's what Safety Dean says, like the. Most bearish case for, or not bearish case for Bitcoin, or yeah, maybe a bearish case for Bitcoin is central it's a banks. Gold, right, it's a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard, yeah. yeah. Or, well, also central banks competing with Bitcoin on monetary policy. Right. Which just would be an admission of, like, the peg would be like, all right, we're going to try to compete, but they exactly. won't be able to in the long run. Right, because then you'd have sound money competing with sound... Sounder money. Sounder, right, exactly. I would say mo sound monies of varying levels of soundness competing with each other. Exactly. Is what you'd have, yeah. 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 Um, it's 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 fun thinking about these things. I have a lot of fun thinking about these thought experiments and thinking about the future. So that's it's another fun thing. being optimistic. It's fun being optimistic. It's fun thinking about the future. Like we talk a lot about, we talked a lot earlier about the chase for yield, and you're really not able to accumulate capital like one should be able to. Yeah. And it's just, again, like I've said this on this podcast before, Bitcoin's going to change us more than we change it. And yep. sort of changing that mindset from conspicuous consumption to capital accumulation. To Time preference, wonders. man. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, just 
think about uh, that's another thing talking about optimism that I'm very optimistic about. People's time preference today is like insane, right? We live in this debt fueled, extremely high time preference society, and when you live in a in a debt powered society, the only way that these businesses can make money is by encouraging high time preference, right? Because they need spend, 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 spend until the bubble pops. I mean, that's the only way to really do it. So all the messages that we get from media, academia are all these very, very, very high time preference messages. And one of the things that I found most uplifting about Safedine's book is when he talked about all the other things that a shift to low time preference uh, affects. Things like art and culture and food and, you know, uh, tend to all improve for the better. Don't tell that to some of the mainstream media uh, pundits that listen to this podcast. <laughs> I know those guys always like a lot of, well, first of all, obviously most mainstream pundits haven't read his book, but one of the things that he, I feel like he gets criticized most about um, is, or, and I, he's actually even told me this, are the chapters on uh, like he did a chapter on like food and diet and things mm-hmm. like, and, and things like that. And, uh, art and, you know, all that sort of stuff that he's talked about. Um, those tend to be almost, I think the easiest, I don't want to say easiest targets in that they're not good arguments. Cause I think they are good arguments, but those are the things that usually get focused on by like mainstream pundits that don't like his writing. Right. Uh, they tend to jump right after that. No, but I think, uh, I think there's a lot of credence behind saves, uh, rationalization for these, for these beliefs. Because at the very least we have correlation, right? I mean like that a lot of, I mean, uh, look at Sea Isle for an example. Yeah, there you look go. Look at what Sea Isle's turned into. Think about what that has turned into. Ninety percent of our listeners have no idea what we're talking about, so I'll just I'll briefly say what's going on there. Like Sea Isle, um, which is where I went to elementary school, used to be this nice little community of cottages, um, more or less cottages. You know, you call them cottages, you call them small homes, whatever. Everybody had a little house, little yard. Um, and if you were, I'm not from Philadelphia, but Marty is. So if you were from Philadelphia, like Marty was. And let, you know, I don't know your background specifically, but if you were just a regular working class Philadelphian, uh, it was not out of the ordinary that if you saved your money, you could buy a little cottage down in Sea Isle and that would be your summer house for your family, right? I mean, yeah, so my grandparents started like in the 50s. My grandfather is going to sound terrible to all you Bitcoiners out there, but my grandfather was the president of the Iron Workers Union in Philly. And that's what he started renting a house in Sea Isle, like in the fifties. You could just be a, a blue collar worker like that, and you could yeah. end up with a house in Sea Isle if that's what you're, you had to save for it. But if it's what you really wanted, yeah, you'd be he able rented. To do it. He, and it was a, a nice little place. It'd be small, but it would have a little yard, and you'd be able to walk to the. There's no place in Sea Isle where you can't walk to the beach, um, and uh, you know that's how it would that's how it would go. Nowadays, Sea Isle is all multifamily buildings slammed into like the tiniest, tiniest spaces. All there's barely a single family house left on the entire Island and they sell for like $600,000 and they're terrible material. They're horribly built. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, I love Seattle to this day. I love it, but it is sad to see like, it has like blown like Seattle, that small Island economy has blown up into this, like, yep. uh, Sort of a small amalgamation of, and the, and the, it, the easy credit that we have. It always had a large uh, seasonal population, right? Mm-hmm. But it also had used to have a decent year-round population. Yeah, like Dennis Township's pretty popping, right? Holy, you just blew. That's where I'm from, man. Yeah. Like that's like yeah, Dennis Township is the town where I where I until I was 18, I lived there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so 
you used to have like in places like Sea Isle, um, this the, the you did have like a, a, you had a nice balance. You had some year round people there. They're gone, man. Because if you live in that area, you don't work for you're not like a banker working for one of these rent seeking industries because down there they don't have that, right? You're work you're just like a working person for the most part if you're down there. And if you're a working person, you can't afford to live in Sea Isle. The only per people that can afford to buy homes in Sea Isle are people that work in these rent-seeking industries in, no offense, but Philadelphia or New York, yeah, right? Um, they're the only people that can come down and buy it. So, like, the year-round population has collapsed to the point where Sea Isle closed both of their schools in the past decade. The, I went to the Catholic school there. The Catholic school actually closed more than 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And their public school is even shut down now in Sea Isle because they just they don't have any children. Yeah. Yeah. Nah, it's crazy to see how much that's changed just in my lifetime. I can't imagine you. Um it's uh, it's wild because I mean I've been, I was born there in '81 and I lived there until '99 before I moved up further north in New Jersey. And uh, did you go to Ocean City? I went to Wildwood Catholic well, High Wildwood School. Wildwood Catholic. I'm go. doxing myself so hard right now because uh, uh, I, can, I can. No, it's okay. You can leave it in. It's not okay. a big deal. Uh, I'm so like compared to most Bitcoiners because I'm a lawyer, like you have to be public about it. Like my face is on my Twitter, like everything is You're pretty jacked too. So I think you could, uh, could I think protect I'll be yourself. Okay. Yeah. You but yeah, Wildwood Catholic high, which was, uh, also closed down. So let's give you an idea of like, it reopened as a much smaller school privately run. It's weird. The diocese shut it down because enrollment got so low. And mm-hmm. then a bunch of private citizens reopened it as a private Catholic school, but it's way smaller than when I used to live there. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy to see how Cape May County's changed in general, like overall. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, and like a lot of economies, there's been winners and losers. The people that have won big time in Cape May County are the realtors. Right. <laughs> yeah. And nothing against them. I mean, they're not creating the system. They're just, exactly. That's they're the making other- money that they, the only way they know how, but yeah. yeah. No, that's the other thing. It's like, People want to point at people and be like, you're the problem, you're the problem. It's like, no. And that's the, again, going back to polarity of our politics right now, red versus blue. Like, again, I think that's a misguided framing of the problem. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. It's great. It's great to see CIL people doing great. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, was not expecting you to, to be from CIL. And uh, I didn't know that, man. It's the, the weirdest. This is only the second weirdest one I've had in the past couple of months. When I was at the MIT Bitcoin conference um, last month. Uh, I met a guy from Iowa and the, so Dennis township that you talked about where I originally am from, it's, that's the township. And then there's several constituent towns that make up the township. So I'm from South Seaville. Um, the, I met a guy from Iowa at the conference. The only place he had ever been to in New Jersey in his entire life was Seaville. What? Tiny, 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 tiny town because his college roommate was from Seaville I mean, I didn't know him because he was a lot younger than me, but, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like what a wild story of all the, I mean, New Jersey for those listeners who are overseas or not on the East coast, New Jersey's got like 9 million people. It's the most densely populated state in the union. Exactly. And the part of the state that Marty and I are talking about right now has less than a hundred thousand. It's tiny. Yeah. Um, and the only place he had ever been in New Jersey, it's the most geographically remote part of the state as well. Um, and the only place he had ever been, yeah, was, uh, was Seville. Wow. What a fucking small world. Uh, it's weird. The people you meet in Bitcoin, man. The right. weirdest part is like, you go to these things. Um, this has happened to you. I'm sure way more than me. I've had people just say, Oh, I know you from Twitter. I recognize you from Twitter. Yeah. That, that, 
And that is always, it's still weird to this day where people are like, oh, you're Marty from Tales from the Crypt. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, you listen to my podcast? I'm like, yeah. Uh, it's cool, man. That's, again, it's like, let's wrap this up. Like, we're an hour and a half here, but like bringing it all together. Like, Bitcoin provides this common mission, and it, that's why I'm into it. Like, again, like going back to like providing optimism, like, I love being on this common mission with people of like minded values and good people. It's I've like, met some of the best people I've ever met since I've gotten more involved in Bitcoin. Uh, and I, I mean that like very, very sincerely, like that sounds trite, but I mean it very sincerely. So many and like three that really stick out to me that have just helped me so much. Um, you know, just get back into the technical side, Pierre, like we've talked about for the reasons we've talked about Justin moon, who we've talked about. And then the other person that I just want to shout out before we uh, cut off here is, uh, you know, Nicholas Dorier. When I first started getting back into development, and I wanted to work with BTC Pay Server, I just kind of slapped this thing together. And he reached out to me and was like, hey, like, here's like a bunch of things you can do that would make your contributions like much better. And I was so grateful, like, you know, for that like bit of help that he gave me in getting back into it. And you see stories like that in Bitcoin all the time. It's just, it's, it's amazing how helpful and kind, frankly, Bitcoiners are to other Bitcoiners. We're so toxic though. Yeah, I know. That's the we're, we're toxic. That's the 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 um the stereotype, right? But I think when, once you're in the club, it's the total opposite. <laughs> well, there is no club either. It's like once you like once that's you, actually a really good point. Once you yeah. break through like just like the ad hominems of toxicity and actually like speak to the people that are being called toxic, you're like, oh, you're actually a normal level headed dude. I or, think a lot of the reason for the toxic stereotype is just that so much Bitcoin related communication takes place on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And the nature of Twitter, like you got 280 characters, people just say there's not a lot of nuance on Twitter. So I think that's probably part of the reason. Not a lot of nuance, a lot of clout chasing, a lot of uh, yeah. a yeah. lot of uh, attempts at ego boosting and stuff like that. Exactly, exactly right. Jeff, it's been a pleasure over an hour and a half. Um, cool, man. Where can we find out more about you? How can we help you work on what you're working on? And yeah, so if you're, uh, well, you can follow me on, on Twitter. My Twitter handle, like, sucks. I apologize. It's at Vandrew, A-T-T-Y-C-P-A. Um, if you want, if you're interested in maybe holding Bitcoin and IRA while holding your own keys, you can go to Vandrew.com, V-A-N-D-R-E-W.com. That's my website. You can learn more about that there. Uh, and then, you know, my GitHub. My GitHub name is just Jeff Vandrew, J-R. Uh, if you want to check out the projects I'm working on, if you have any improvements or comments or contributions you want to make, you can find all my stuff there. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks again for coming through. Likewise, man. Thanks a lot. Like I said, uh, it's great to see people from Seattle doing well. People from Dennis Township doing well. Thanks. Uh, peace and love, freaks. <laughs>